John chapter 3. I don't know uh, <clears throat> if you've been watching the TV series, The Traitors. I I'm really tempted to ask you to put your hands up, <laughs> but I don't want to embarrass you. Uh, uh, different people have different views on, on that, The Traitors. I haven't been watching it, but it has been there as it were, in the corner of my eye. Our, our computer sits in the opposite corner of the room from where the TV is. Uh, so I've been working at the computer and it's been in the corner of my eye and in my right ear. Uh, so as you'll know, there are people in our house who do watch The Traitors. Uh, so I haven't been watching it other than that background bit. But everybody has been raving about it. I get emails from an organization called the London Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Uh, and that week, when they were coming to the end of it, I got an email uh, from them all about uh, the Traitors program on, on television. That was a very good email and, and a point well made. Uh, uh, the premise, for, for those who, can, put your hand up if you know what this is. I can't resist this. Put your hand up. <laughs> right, okay. For those sensible people who don't know what it is, <laughs> the premise is simple, it's simple. 22 contest contestants, one Highland castle, a series of challenges, and a potential shared prize of 120,000 pounds. But there's a catch. There is a catch. Some contestants are out to eliminate the others. There'd be no fun in it if there wasn't. They're out to eliminate the others and claim the money for themselves. These are the traitors. I think I've got it right. There are about four of them. Would that be right? Yeah. Yep, something like that. And it's the job of the rest of the team, the rest of the, the body of people called the faithful to discover who they are and vote them out. Um, but here's the thing. You and I, if we're watching the program, we can see the problem. And we actually know who the traitors are. You, you're actually looking in from the outside and you know who the traitors are. Obviously, there'd be no challenge for the folk uh, in the program. However, if you're this TV viewer, you are looking into the game from the outside and you know exactly who the traitors are. And it's actually something like a God's eye view. And that's where Nicodemus is. That's where Nicodemus is as we start John chapter 3 in this account, in his chat with Nicodemus. We don't learn very much about this man. He's here in John chapter 3. You will discover him again in John chapter 7, where he's with his buddies, the Pharisees, and they're discussing Jesus in not a very nice light. And Nicodemus says to them, um, is it not our tradition that we give a man a hearing before we judge him? That's it. We come across him again in John chapter 19 at the burial of Jesus. He goes with Joseph of Arimathea. They take the body of Jesus. Nicodemus puts oil on his body and they bury him. That's it. You don't hear anything else about Nicodemus. And you're left wondering, did, did he actually believe in Jesus or did he not? You see, that's why you have to get to heaven because only by actually getting there at the end of your life or when Christ returns will you actually be able to find out the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We are told that he was a Pharisee. 
and a member of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. Jesus had the God's eye view. We learn if we had time to look in chapter 2, you get to the end of chapter 2, you read this. But um, Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed, believed in his name. I hold on to the word believed. What does it mean? But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. These people believed in a man who did signs, miracles. But actually what we're being told is, Jesus knew rightly, they weren't believing in him. They weren't believing in him. So Jesus had this God's eye view. We learn from those last couple of verses that Jesus knew what was in each person. Isn't that scary, for one? Because he knows exactly what you're thinking right now. He knows exactly what I'm thinking right now. Knows everything about me. But Jesus knew what was in each person. And by way of learning something about Nicodemus, what might Jesus have seen? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 23, uh, both verse 15 and verse 33, you will read this, words from the lips of Jesus about the Pharisees. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? That was Jesus' opinion of the Pharisees. Now, I don't for one moment maybe think that all the Pharisees were like that. We, we don't know. But that's the general opinion of Jesus towards this body of, of people. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Nicodemus was about to be given the answer to that question. So here are four things we'll get from uh, Nicodemus. Hopefully we'll get them fairly quickly. First this, very important. Very important for you and for me. Nicodemus was a religious man, an extremely religious man, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, like the Apostle Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he called himself. No good to him, but we'll come to that in a minute. What this means is that Nicodemus was a basic religious super trooper. He had been to the right schools, obtained the best qualifications, moved in the right circles, both in church and society. He was a teacher of Israel. He had, he felt, everything going for him religiously, spiritually. It appears that he also had some kind of perception of what God could do. Because he comes to Jesus, having been impressed with the signs that Jesus had done, and probably having had a chat with some of his mates, he comes to Jesus, <coughs> and he was impressed, and wouldn't you and I be? If somebody had just turned a, a, a barrel full of water at a wedding reception into the best wine, we'd be impressed. Well, I wouldn't be. I don't drink wine. But anyway, you know, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. 
He had that much. He was prepared to accept that much. We, he's been talking with the council. They are sure of this much, that God is with Jesus. Now, we need to understand the mindset that as an Orthodox Jew, Nicodemus understood that the kingdom of God would arrive at the end of history and usher in the, the age to come. And the Jews, the devout Jews, believe that every Jew will be in that kingdom other than those who have uh, committed some really, really, really grave uh, sins. His thinking was that his credentials were good for entering into that kingdom. The door was wide open. After all, he was from an elite background. His relationship with his contemporaries was that he was a leader among them. He was a member of the right race. And he had been keeping all the right rules. Because he understood that the way of salvation for one of these religious super troopers, these orthodox men, was to be found in observing the law, in keeping the traditions, and paying attention to the rules that God had said, he was good to go. Good to go. Now, what we need to understand about Nicodemus he came to see Jesus at night. And we make a lot of that. And there are all sorts of people, all sorts of theories. We don't really know why he came. Uh, he may well have been embarrassed and didn't want his buddies to, to see. It might well be that Jesus was so busy during the day that he couldn't actually get to speak to him. So we don't know. But he came at night. But what we see in Nicodemus is that there was a darker night than the one in which Jesus or Nicodemus came to see Jesus. It was in his soul. It was in his soul. The dark night of his soul. In fact, night is probably an inadequate description of his soul condition. He was spiritually dead. That's what Paul says to the Ephesians. You're dead. You're dead. And he wasn't even aware of it. He thought he was good to go. But Jesus was about to perform, if you like, soul surgery. Nicodemus, listen to me. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You who think that born again is the language of the mission hall, you got it wrong, it's in the Bible. It's very Presbyterian. Very Presbyterian. No one can enter the kingdom of God, he says in, in verse 5, unless they are born of water and the Spirit. We'll come to that in a minute. Jesus didn't even wait. That was not a question at the beginning of this passage. Nicodemus never got to asking a question. Jesus just went in there. Just went in there. That's the first thing. The second thing there, the first thing is Nicodemus is a religious man. That, that, that that applies to us. We're all religious people in here this morning. We probably know lots of religious people as well, but we have to ask ourselves, are we just religious people? Because we're going to find in Nicodemus that that's, that's not enough. It's not enough. Second thing is this, Nicodemus, his need. Nicodemus needs supernatural life. And I put in the word supernatural as opposed to spiritual because spiritual is applied to all sorts of things. You hug trees today, you're spiritual. You know, 
It's true. It's true. So you have to be really careful how we use that word. It's a good word. It's a good word. But we have to be careful how we use it. Jesus confronts Nicodemus with the truth about himself and the truth about all his fellow leaders in Israel. All his religion, his amazing Pharisaic study, he had all the, forgive me, you who are doing PhDs. He had all the PhDs you could possibly want to have. All his discipline, all his law keeping cannot replace the need for a new birth. That's what Jesus is saying to him. In reality, this man supposed, I'll use the word spiritual now, spiritual God experience and stature, they're non-existent. Non-existent. There is no spiritual life in this Pharisee. That's the truth. He is unborn. He's unborn spiritually. He needs life. He doesn't need more religious activity. Isn't it amazing how we can pile up religious activities in church? Boys, we, we get exhausted with religious activities. It's amazing. But he didn't need more religious activities. He had enough of that stuff. He didn't need more religious enthusiasm. He has plenty of that. He needs a new creation. Not improving the old because becoming a Christian, being born again, is not about improving the old. Paul says, you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. What he does is try to reduce, and this is, we're all very good at this. <clears throat> he tries to reduce what Jesus has said to a, a, a material level. Keep it human. Keep it focused on people, not God. How can I be born again? Are you, are you kidding me, Jesus? Can I go into my mother's womb and be born all over again? Jesus doesn't allow him to avoid the truth. Back to that verse 5 again. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. To teach Nicodemus that he is talking about something essential here, Jesus is taking him back. Now, back, let me suggest to you, Jesus is taking him back into the Old Testament. This is a teacher of Israel. He was a scholar, a biblical scholar of the Old Testament. That was his Bible. So Jesus is taking him back to the Old Testament, which he's supposed to know and teach. Ezekiel chapter 36, you should open it sometime and have a look at it. It's, it's the, the chapter just before uh, the one where the wind blows from the four corners of the earth and the bones rattle and come alive in the desert. And we find there God making his new covenant promise through the prophet. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart. I will put my spirit in you. And this is the most logical explanation for what Jesus says here. Some say, oh, it's baptism. No, it's not. This would be defying everything that the rest of the New Testament says uh, about becoming a Christian. It's tying up this, the baptism with the new birth and making it essential. And baptism is not essential, it's commanded, but you don't get saved 
by getting a drop of water splashed on you when you're a baby, or getting ducked in a big basin thing or when you're an adult. That doesn't work. It's nothing to do with getting saved. So the water has nothing to do with baptism, as some suggest. In my opinion, it is actually about cleansing from sin. That's what Jesus is concerned about, this man's sinfulness. It's an operation which takes place by the power of God's Spirit. You cannot get your sins forgiven. You can't make it happen. What Jesus is saying is, unless you are cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit, unless you are made aware that you need the blood of Jesus Christ to wash you, and you, you, you can't get you can't even see, you can't enter, you can't see, you can't understand what the kingdom of God is all about. This is an act of God that Jesus is, is, is talking about. Humans, Jesus says, human beings, people, men and women, can only produce human results. That's what religion does for you, produces man-centered results. The Spirit alone brings that supernatural aspect from the outside brings, produces spiritual life. And then once again, Jesus just hits him another punch. Nicodemus, you must be born again. Third time he said that, third time. This is important, Jesus doesn't waste words. Third time. It's like the wind, Jesus says. It's there, we can feel it, Uh, we know what's there, we can see its results, but we cannot control it. My back garden fence is kind of going like that at the present time after the other Sunday evening. Nobody wants to fix it. It's very difficult to get anybody to come and fix your fence, so it is. But that's the effect of the storm. It's the effect of the storm, and we cannot control it. So also is the Spirit of God, Jesus says. He works from outside of us. We cannot manipulate Him. He alone takes us to God. Nicodemus needs to understand that he needs more than his religion. He should have known that from Ezekiel chapter 36. Only in this can he begin to see what is required for eternal life. That's the issue in this story of Nicodemus, folks. Um, I don't know if he's a scoundrel or not, but the issue is he needs to be born again. He needs to be born again. And therefore, the third thing which we can see in Nicodemus is that Nicodemus's need is a universal need. In uh, that chapter in John 3, uh, in verse 7, John's record shows that as Jesus exposes the darkness and the deadness of Nicodemus's soul, he shifts the focus from Nicodemus to all people. You, you can't see that in, in the English translation. How does he do it? by slipping in a plural form of words. You must be born again actually means y'all or usens, whatever you like, means everybody must be born again to, to enter the kingdom of God. And he's saying to him, Nicodemus, you're not alone in this. You have plenty of company in this spiritual dilemma. This is a universal Bible truth. If anyone wants to experience life in the kingdom of God, wants to go to heaven to use the everyday language, they must be born again. They must begin to realize that true spiritual experience 
begins with the grace of God coming into us. Nothing that we can, can, can work up in ourselves. Not with mere religion or any other efforts of men and women. And Nicodemus still doesn't get it. So don't be surprised if you know people whom you have talked to uh, 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 about the gospel and about Jesus and time and time again, and they still don't get it. It's perfectly normal. Perfectly normal. Still don't get it. How can this be? Jesus turns the chat to himself. I don't know whether this is the bit that worked in Nicodemus' life or not. To Nicodemus' question, how can this be? Jesus turns the conversation to himself. He is basically saying, I am how it can be. He takes Nicodemus back again to the Old Testament. We were talking to the boys and girls, the boys, but at the Old Testament, which Nicodemus was familiar with. That's Numbers 21. That's where you find that story about the snakes in the desert and, and the, the, the brass snake on, on the pole. The account of Israel rescued from Egypt and grumbling in the desert when Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, do you remember that? You've read that, Nicodemus. You, you know about that. You remember that they'd all been bitten by the snake, and st the snake and they were all filled with the venom of the snake. And God in his mercy and his grace, using the means of this bronze or brass snake, says that everyone who looks, everyone who looks, believing God's promise, looks to the snake, will be free from the poison. And Jesus talks about himself in verses 13 to 15. He calls himself the son of man. He'll get that away back in, in Daniel. One like a son of man. It became a, a, a title for Jesus. Jesus is the rescuer. Jesus takes the place, as it were, of the snake. Made sin who knew no sin. From the cross, Jesus gives us eternal life. All this he says to Nicodemus who is confused about the new birth. To the one who is dead and blind in religious sin. The one who needs not to look at a, at a, at a bronze snake. Who needs to look to Jesus. That everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. What should you do, Nicodemus? We know that. We know what he should do. What should we do? Hopefully we know that also. There's, there's one wee final bit here. And we'll come to the table. Because Nicodemus actually brings us to this table. The Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. This is about memory. This is about not forgiving, not forgetting. This is about what has been done for you if you are a believer this morning and this is what has been done that you might believe if you don't believe already. This table reminds us that Jesus has been lifted up for our salvation, crucified, The call from Nicodemus, from John 3, from John the Apostle, from this table is look to him. That's it, look to him.
Make sure, before you even nibble a bit of bread and sub a wee drop of wine, make sure that you have looked to Him and commit yourself to keep on looking to Him. Do not depend on your religious activities or traditions. Look, folks, they all have their place, but they are totally useless. Totally useless for eternal life. This conversation with Nicodemus also reminds us that eventually the bronze snake had to be destroyed. You'll read about it in uh, 2 Kings chapter 18 under King Hezekiah who brought uh, reforms to, to, to Judah. It had to be destroyed because too many people were worshiping the bronze snake. Isn't that really sad? They were believing that it had some inherent magical power, something like that. Don't, don't take my word for it, just read 2 Kings 18. This bread and this wine, this sacrament, has too often in the minds of many people been infused with magical power. I, 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 I've lost count of the number of times I've seen this in 40 years in the ministry. Magical power. People don't realize that that's what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. Magical power to save. What's under these cloths will not save you. It just, it won't do. It's not going to work. As we read Paul's words of institution in a few minutes, we will find that we are to do this thing until he comes. You know what's going to happen after that? The bread and the wine are going to disappear. Because you won't need it. You will see Jesus. You don't have to. Your memory will be absolutely amazing. It'll be perfect. You look forward to that. Be perfect. You won't need bread and wine. It will disappear forever because it does not save. Only Jesus can do that. Today, therefore, eat and drink this wine, believing in him. As we trust Nicodemus did before the end of his life. That's a little prayer before we sing. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you uh, for this uh, amazing passage recording this conversation with Jesus. Lord, we know all of your word is holy, but this is surely holy ground. Help us, we pray simply, that as we continue in worship, as we eat this bread and drink this wine, just that your spirit might move among us and convince us of whatever our need is. To come to faith, maybe. To be reassured about our faith. To be built up and challenged in our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.